God, our Father, God in heaven, we wonder why you love us so much and why you are so patient with us, so willing to sacrifice for us. Your word tells us that you are love. We ask that we would know your love today. We ask that your love for us would move us to worship you, to worship you in spirit and in truth, for you are worthy. You are good. You are right. You are beautiful. And you are love. We confess that we are not by nature loving, that we are often critical of others, resentful when called on to help. Certainly there are things and people we love, but mostly we love ourselves and we form our opinions of others based upon how well they serve us. And so we ask you to forgive us and to make us more like yourself. We thank you for the blessings of this past week, for the blessings of work and family, of home and simple pleasures. We thank you that we feel well, that we are not hungry or homeless. We thank you that you have given us people to care about, to dote on, to nurture, to attend to. We thank you that we are not lonely or useless. We pray this day for your help and mercy. We pray for those who do not know you or acknowledge you. We pray for those who are outside the safety and the comfort of your fold. Lord Jesus, in your mercy, find them and bring them in. Break their hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh. Do not abandon them to the consequences of their own rebellion. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. We pray for those who are part of the household of God, but who are weary from the struggles of this life. Lord Jesus, you lived this life on earth. You faced every trial that we would ever face, and so you are not without sympathy for us. We ask that you would encourage and strengthen those who feel like they are wilting, those who are tempted to give up. Lord, be their strength and their stronghold. King Jesus, we pray for our session and for our school board. We pray for those who rule and govern in our ministries in your name, that they might be of one mind and one spirit, that they might be diligent in the execution of their offices, that they might bring great benefit to the people they serve, that their service might be a joy and not a burden to them. And now, Lord, hear us as we pray individually for those you have given to us to care about and to care for. All these favors we ask in the name of Jesus, who taught us all to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our New Testament reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John chapter 15. I will 
read verses 9 through 27. Hear the word of God. For as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in the Father's name, ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, you are with us this morning, sent to us by Jesus and by the Father. We are grateful for your presence here and we thank you for coming. We ask that you would bear witness to Jesus this morning. We pray that as you testify about him, that we would hear you loud and clear, that we would be convicted of our sin and need of you, that we would be convinced of your love for us, and that we would be comforted as we face the hostility of the world. You are great and we are grateful. And so we salute you and worship you this morning. May our reading of your word be fruitful. May we understand it well. These favors we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. In his commentary on the Gospel of John, R.C. Sproul suggests that the speech that we just read 
by Jesus is a kind of graduation speech. You'll recall that we're still at the Last Supper, the night before Jesus is executed. Judas Iscariot has already gone out into the night to betray Jesus. And the remaining disciples sit around the table while Jesus gives his final instructions. In verse 15, Jesus says to the eleven, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. There comes a point in a relationship with a parent or a teacher or a mentor or a boss when that person takes you into their confidence, when that person shares with you what's really going on, when that person shows you how things really work. And at that point, you feel like you've grown up. You feel like you've graduated. Jesus, in this passage, takes the disciples into his confidence. Yes, of course, he's been teaching them steadily for three years. But now that the curtain is about to drop on Jesus' earthly ministry, now that Jesus is about to go away, Jesus takes them into his innermost confidence and unveils three weighty truths, three graduation truths, we might call them. One is positive. One is negative. And one is hopeful. So in this sermon, I want to walk through those three graduation truths in sequence, the sequence in which Jesus presents them, beginning with the positive. The positive graduation truth that Jesus lays out shows up in verses 9 through 17, and it comes down to this. God loves you. Now, maybe you're thinking, ho-hum, surely you can do better than that, preacher. Everybody knows that God loves us. That's hardly a graduation truth. Please don't tell me I came all the way to church this morning just to hear that God loves us. I understand that, but hear me out. That God loves us is a profound truth, a truth worthy of being unveiled in a graduation speech, a truth that once appeared as a total shock, And a surprise to people on earth who heard it. The truth that God loves us. Unfortunately, this profound truth has suffered from misunderstanding and cheap familiarity that debases and devalues its importance. We moderns, we have such an elevated opinion of ourselves, such a sense of privilege and entitlement that we can't imagine that anyone wouldn't love us. We are, after all, perfectly lovable. And God... Well, it's God's job to love people, isn't it? And God is even more indiscriminate in His love than Santa Claus. I mean, Santa Claus keeps a naughty list and a nice list, but God is so big-hearted that no one makes the naughty list, or if someone does get on the naughty list, they certainly aren't anybody that we know. I'm not exactly sure how we came to this place of being blasé, about the earth-shattering truth that God loves us. The ancient pagans certainly didn't think that way. No one ever said, Zeus loves me. No one ever said, Baal loves us. But now, and I believe it's because of Jesus, because the Christian worldview is so deeply ingrained into the modern Western mind, we moderns say, ho-hum. 
when someone tells us that God loves us. And I think we need to get past this nonchalant attitude and recapture a little bit of the amazement. And I think what Jesus says about His love for us in John chapter 15 should open our eyes. In this passage, in this graduation speech, we learned three things about the love of God. Number one, that it's massive. Number two, that it is intensive. And number three, that it is exclusive. Verse 9 says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. In Greek, that sentence begins with the particle kathos, which means just as, or in proportion as, or in the degree that. Kathos signals an equivalence between two terms in the same sentence. So how much does Jesus love you? Well, He loves you as much as God the Father loves Him. And how much does God the Father love God the Son? The Father's love for the Son is massive. We're talking about the inside of the Holy Trinity, the mutual attraction among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Their perfect love for one another is incomprehensibly massive. Think about the gravitational singularity at the center of a black hole. An attractive force so great that even light cannot escape. That's a passing fancy compared with the love of God for His Son. Think about the strong nuclear force that binds together the particles inside of an atom. That's a soggy, saggy rubber band compared with the attraction between God the Father and God the Son. Think about it this way. God the Father and God the Son have been together since eternity. There's no one in the world that understands them as well as they understand each other. And all of their big projects, the creation of the universe, the law of Mount Sinai, the incarnation of Jesus of Nazareth, all of those big projects they've worked on together. God's love for Jesus is massive. And just as, or in proportion as, or in the degree that God loves Jesus, Jesus loves you. Our minds should be blown. God's love for us is massive. It's also intensive. In verse 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now there are some parents who say that they would die for their children. Children, close your ears. i got to tell the truth now. Certainly our attachment to our children is or at least should be among the most intense attachments that we have. I can't imagine a greater grief than losing a child. But would we parents actually die for our kids? Eh, I'm not sure. Jesus, however, did willingly and consciously go to his own death knowing that his death was necessary for our redemption. There are... Noteworthy examples of individuals dying to save others. Maybe you know the story of Maximilian Kolbe. Anybody know Maximilian Kolbe? Oh, you need to know this guy. He's great. Maximilian Kolbe, a Polish priest, died in Auschwitz. When Poland was overrun by the Germans in September 1939, he and a bunch of the other priests in the house where they lived were arrested on general uh, suspicion. And then they were released three months later. As he and his fellow priests are being loaded into the back of the truck for transport to the prison, Kolbe says to those who are seeing him off, Have courage, boys. 
Don't you see that we're leaving on a mission? In February 1941, Kolbe was arrested again, this time for hiding and feeding Jews. And he was sent to Auschwitz and he was tattooed number prisoner number 16670 and he then labored under brutal conditions. And in July 1941, three prisoners escaped from the camp and in retaliation, the deputy commander of Auschwitz ordered ten men to be chosen at random to be starved to death in an underground bunker. One of the men selected was Francis Gajanacek, and as he's being marched off to his certain death, he cries out, My wife! My children! And at that point, Kolbe volunteered to take his place. The Nazi commander said, What does this Polish pig want? And Father Kolbe pointed to Gajanacek and he said, I would like to take his place because he has a wife and children. Two weeks later, Father Kolbe died while Gajanacek survived Auschwitz. And he went on to live to the ripe old age of 93. Years later, describing what happened, Gajanacek said, I was stunned. I could hardly grasp what was going on, the immensity of it. I, the condemned, am to live. And someone else willingly and voluntarily offers his life for me, a stranger. Is this some dream? Well, it's no dream. Father Kolbe, a Roman Catholic priest, was imitating the love that Christ has for us. A love that makes one man willing to die for another. God's love for us is massive. It's also intensive. And thirdly, God's love for us is exclusive. While we moderns take it for granted that God loves us, we don't like the idea that God's love is exclusive. Maybe that's because down deep we're afraid that we might be the ones who are excluded. And to tell the truth, we all know that none of us deserve God's love. But here's what Scripture teaches. If we receive God's love, it is only because of God's sovereign grace. God does, God does not love us because of our virtue. God does not love us because we are lovable. God does not love us because we loved Him first. If we love God, it's because God loved us before we loved Him. Jesus says in verse 16, You did not choose me. But I chose you. And Jesus makes it clear that when he says, I choose you, he means to the exclusion of others, whom he calls the world. You were chosen and some were not. They are called the world. That is, of course, a deep mystery. It is a fearful truth. But the meaning is unambiguous when Jesus says in verse 19, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So we don't brag about the choice that God made in putting his love upon us because we did nothing to deserve it. And we don't speculate into the causes of nor stand in judgment of God's choice. He is God. We are not. And at some level, every day, we need to be reminded of what God said to Job. Hey, Job, where were you when I created the world? So that's the positive 
graduation truth that God loves us, that God's love is massive, that He loves us intensely, that He loves us exclusively. And that truth should drive us to worship and to thanksgiving. Thanks be to God. The negative graduation truth that Jesus lays out shows up in verses 18 through 25, and it comes down to this. The world hates us. This news is really awful, and I wish it weren't true, and I realize that this isn't a big selling point for Christianity if you're not a believer. But as a follower of Jesus, we take him at his word, and so we're kind of stuck with this hard graduation truth. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And then Jesus explains why the world hates his followers, because He chose us out of the world. I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It hates us in big ways, and it hates us in little ways. The world hates us in big ways. We live in a time when Christians are again being jailed and crucified and beheaded and massacred and driven from their homes and from their traditional lands. What is it about Christianity that motivates this kind of hatred? And the world hates us in little ways... It feels kind of silly even to whine about it because these little ways are first world problems, inconsequential when compared with the troubles that Christians face around the globe. But the truth is that a lot of people have a negative reaction to our faith. If we shut up about our faith, they'll tolerate us. But if you want to clear a room really fast, walk into a party and say, hey, do you mind if I talk with you about Jesus? But why does the world hate us? Well, to tell the truth, sometimes it hates us because we are big, fat, obnoxious jerks. But there are other times when it hates us, even when we haven't given offense. In verse 25, Jesus says, they hated me without cause. He seems to be quoting Psalm 69, which we read earlier in the service. In that Psalm, King David, from whose throne Jesus now reigns, King David says, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Yes, there are times when people hate us because we're big, fat, obnoxious jerks. And those times we largely get what we deserve and we should just learn from it and change our ways. But there are and will be other times when people will hate us simply because we're a follower of Christ. No matter how sweet or kind or inoffensive we might be. Jesus says the world will hate us because it hates Jesus. And so the negative reaction to us is just a secondhand reaction. But that drives us to the question, why does the world hate Jesus? Isn't he the sweetest, kindest, most inoffensive, blandest person who ever lived? Jesus, in this passage, doesn't actually answer the question of why the world hates him. But I believe that the reason the world hates Jesus is because he's the king. He's the king. He requires worship and obedience. If Jesus is who he says he is, then we have to bend our knee. And we have to bend our wills to him. But the world, which is nothing more than the group name for all of us in our old unredeemed self, all of us before we've been uh, redeemed, all of us start out as the world. The world wants to be its own king. I want to be my own boss. And if Jesus comes walking onto the scene claiming to be the king of the universe, then I am dethroned. 
And I hate that. If he's king, I'm not. And that makes my old self, my unredeemed self, crazy. Crazy enough to be hateful. I think that's the impetus of the reaction against Jesus. And so, anyone who represents Jesus and Jesus' claim to universal, absolute lordship can become a target of a secondhand hate. The world hates us because it hates Jesus. It's a tough truth, a tough graduation truth, and we've heard it from the lips of Jesus this morning. The hopeful graduation truth that Jesus lays out for us, shows up in verse 26, and it comes down to this, the Holy Spirit will help us. It's wonderful that God loves us so much, mind-blowing really, and it's a real drag that having God loves us makes other people hate us. I wish that weren't the truth. I wish they would just join the party and celebrate with us, but that hostility is a reality that we have to deal with. And so Jesus promises us that he won't leave us alone to deal with that hostility by ourselves. He will send us the Holy Spirit. In verse 26, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the helper, the spirit of truth. Now we talked about the Holy Spirit at length several weeks ago on June 25, so I'm not going to revisit all of that information. But the upshot is that God does not abandon us in difficulties. The Holy Spirit is God And he resides inside each redeemed individual. And so we don't face any of the troubles of this world alone. Whenever we face an enemy, whenever we face opposition, it is always us plus the Holy Spirit. And so the odds are always in our favor. And that's the final graduation truth that Jesus offers in this passage. That the Holy Spirit is with us. A hopeful graduation truth. On the night of the Last Supper, less than 24 hours before he would be executed, Jesus gathered with the 11 disciples and he said, No longer are you my servants, now you are my friends. And then he confided in them weighty truths, graduation truths, to equip them for their new status as fully-fledged apostles, God's representatives in this world. God's love for us is massive. I think we need to meditate on that truth often. Not because it strokes our ego or stokes our confidence. I think we need to meditate on that truth because I think it will cause us to love God better in return. And I think it will enable us to love other people in the way that God loves us. We are called to love people in big, self-sacrificing ways. Jesus gave up his life for us. And we need to lay down our lives for others. And I'm not talking just about dying for someone in a concentration camp. I'm also talking about saying no to ourselves so that we can say yes to our spouses. I'm talking about giving up something for ourselves so that we can give it to someone else. Let's not even worry about the big, dramatic self-sacrifice of Father Colby. Let's just talk about those everyday kinds of ways we should be more Christ-like toward our families and toward our neighbors. God's love for us should thrill our hearts, and we should cultivate a wonder and a delight in His love. And then, out of that love that pours into us, the overflow is going to pour into the people who are around us. The world's hate for us is real, but it's a second-hand hate, 
It's really just a misplaced hatred for King Jesus who dethrones every ruler and every power, every petty tyrant and every self-appointed monarch. We love to be in charge. We love to call the shots. And so the universal, absolute, eternal lordship and kingship of Jesus just rubs us the wrong way. Well, it rubs our old nature the wrong way. If we face hatred in this world, we should be not surprised or bitter. We should take it in stride. We shouldn't take it too seriously. We shouldn't never take it personally. And we should always remember that God loved us while we were enemies toward him. And so we in turn are called to love those who hate us. We should also be sensitive to our own hatred of Christ's kingship. Are there times when we harden our hearts against Jesus because we're sick of having him as commander-in-chief. We need to be sensitive to that, and we need to nip that kind of resistance in the bud. And that means periodically taking stock of our hearts and seeing if we are submitted to Christ. And finally, we need to keep reminding ourselves that we are not in this alone. God is with us. The Holy Spirit inhabits us. We have not been abandoned. Neither have we been left without resources. Three weighty truths, three graduation truths, and they are for us, the friends of Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we do honor you and we bless your name this day. And we thank you for the love that you have shown to us through Christ. We thank you that you have sent us your Holy Spirit. And that by the power of that Spirit, uh, we are attached to you. We are equipped to... Do what it is that you've called us to do in this world, and we pray that you would fill us with your joy as we become more aware of of your love. And we ask these favors in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.